We're looking at this passage in John 12. It's a very well-known passage. It's recorded also in the other Gospels. And you heard it read earlier. And really, I'm just going to go through it in the most straightforward fashion. Verse, section by section, not exactly verse by verse. Just really wanting us to dive into the story today and try not to distract from the story too much. And really, the main point is going to be this. And hopefully you hear it come through as we go through the text. And the main point is that Jesus Christ humbled himself in death for our restoration. So let's humble ourselves in extravagant worship. Jesus Christ humbled himself in death for our restoration. So let's humble ourselves in extravagant worship. We didn't read verses uh, in chapter 11, verses, verses 55 to 57, but it gives us a little bit of context. And in those verses, we see that Jesus' return to Bethany was under the threat of death. And we're going to see this, this theme of death throughout this passage. So at this point in the Gospels, we see that the tension between the Pharisees and Jesus has been escalating throughout. And that Jesus had been ministering now away from Jerusalem, away from Judea, away from where the Pharisees had the most influence and power. But now the Jewish Passover was coming. And Jews from all over were coming back to Judea and Jerusalem to celebrate this most important of religious festivals in Jerusalem. And so we hear in in these verses that there's the, the crowds of people are interested about Jesus. They've heard about what he's done, or maybe they've even seen and witnessed it themselves. And and they're asking, is Jesus going to be coming to Jerusalem? Will we hear from him? Will we see him? And yet at the same time, the Jewish religious leaders have made their minds up to arrest Jesus, even to kill him if they can. And so the smell of death was all around when it came to the threat that Jesus was under. But Jesus wasn't afraid of worldly threats. He wasn't afraid of his life possibly being taken because he knew that he was playing out his role in the plan of God for the restoration of all mankind. So we come to verse 1 in chapter 12, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses here and then work through it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So we see here, just simply in these first two verses, really, we're giving the, again, where are we? What is the situation? But one thing that really stands out is that Jesus is the one who has power over death. We're told that this account happens in Lazarus' house. And it's funny because uh, Martha and Mary are there as well, and their portrayal in this account is consistent with another famous account involving them in Luke 10. And in in, in Luke 10, we hear these words from Jesus. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, as always, is honoring God through her service, busying herself with that service, assumingly from, you know, a, a sense of wanting to worship God. And Mary, on the other hand, is honoring Jesus through an act of devotion, both here in this chapter, but also in Luke 10. And so we, we can see that. You know, we, we know people like this. We know people like Martha who are always wanting to show their love and honor God through their service. And we know people who just want to sit at the Lord's feet. And in both occasions, though, Mary's posture of devotion is the one that is highlighted and commended. 
But most importantly, in this section, we're reminded that Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the death. That Lazarus had died, but by the power of Jesus, he had come back to life. That Jesus was the one who has power over death. And we move on to verse 3, which says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We see here again that Mary engaged in this scandalous act of worship. And really, unwittingly, she's preparing Jesus' body for burial in his death. This perfume, as it stated here, is, is, is expensive. We know from this account that it was worth a year's wages according to what a day labor would make. So think really even less than minimum wage and some have estimated this perfume to be worth $10,000 today. Nard was an expensive perfume from India and given how we know that Mary is, is, is not wealthy, that this may, may have been an heirloom that was passed on to her, something very precious to her um, for sentimental reasons, also uh, for obviously financial reasons. And we know that she is willing to give this up, this, both this heirloom and this financial uh, asset, in order to worship God, in order to worship Jesus. And it's such a, a great act of devotion for her to do that. And so the, uh, the amount of money, you could say, in her worshiping Jesus is, is scandalous in and of itself. How many of us would, would do that for this one act of worship to God? But what is even more scandalous is really the act of itself. It, the act itself. It was not appropriate for Jewish women in the day to even let their hair down in public. And so for Mary to sit at Jesus' feet, to let her hair down in public, and then to wipe his feet with her hair, people would have considered that a sexual act. That's how inappropriate, that's how scandalous it would have been seen. But Mary's love and devotion to Jesus enabled her to defy the cultural norms. It was almost a self-forgetfulness. She was not even really that aware of what was appropriate, what setting she was in. She just wanted to worship God in an extravagant way. And the Gospel of John, which we're in, focuses on Jesus' feet being anointed specifically And really, I think, trying to draw attention to Mary's humility in this act of worship. But also preparing the reader later on in John for the even more scandalous act of Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, washing the disciples' feet. But let me ask this question. What was more costly, the expensive perfume or her pride? The expensive perfume or her pride? Can you imagine humbling yourself before Jesus in front of everyone without any feeling of self-consciousness? Can you imagine scandalizing yourself by doing such a thing to break all cultural norms, risk being called all kinds of names in order to be devoted and worship God? Would you risk your reputation in order to worship Jesus? Maybe you can imagine giving a large sum of money, at least proportionally, to your income to God as an act of worship. But can you imagine sacrificing your pride in worship to God? Can you imagine humbling yourself the way Mary did, humbling herself before Jesus in order to worship Him? 
when we increasingly see who Jesus is and who we are, then we are led to be humbled in the presence of God, led to want to give extravagant acts of worship to Him, the one who gave so richly to us and who has set us free. We see in similar accounts in the gospel that tell us about this interaction in Matthew 26 and and Mark 14 that do suggest that Mary's feet, I'm sorry, Jesus' feet were anointed by Mary. But in those passages, the focus is on Mary anointing Jesus' head first and then the rest of his body. And even in this passage in John 12, that is referenced as well, that that the rest of his body was um, anointed as well with this expensive perfume. It's important for this reason because Jesus interprets this act of worship as preparation for his burial in days to come. Mary most likely doesn't really know what she's doing other than wanting to worship God, a simple act of worship. And yet Jesus interpreted it as, my day is coming. My day on the cross is coming. He very consciously knows the role he is playing out as he walks to the cross, as the day draws near for him to die for the sins of the world. And so he receives this act of worship as preparation for his body to be buried underneath the ground after he would die on the cross for sins. And he knew that as he was buried, that he would conquer the power of sin and death through that act so that all humans who put their faith in Christ might be restored into relationship with God. Now, every good story has to have a villain of some kind, a foil to the hero. And that's what we come to in verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We see here that Judas worshipped himself more than worshipping Jesus. And it led to lying, stealing, and ultimately betrayal. And so it's interesting to note this, that in the Gospel of John, whenever John mentions Judas, he references Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And perhaps it's because John is known as the one whom Jesus loved. And so maybe in John's mind, Judas' betrayal incensed him more than any of the other gospel writers. And so we are told again that Judas is the one who betrays Jesus later on. But we have to remember at the same time that Judas in this moment is probably expressing simply what everyone else in the room is thinking. What is this woman doing? This is such a valuable bottle of perfume. This had been used for so many other things. We have these kinds of arguments in the church all the time. This is why people argue about budgets. What shall we spend the church's money on? And this is what is happening. And Judas is, after all, the treasurer. He is the one who is in charge of the money. And so it makes sense that he would make a comment about something to do with money. But we find here that scripture records also for us the motivations behind Judas's act and his heart. And that Judas is found to be lying about his concern. He's really not concerned about the poor at all. He's concerned that he might have less to steal from. 
Because we know after the fact that he had done that and that he covered up his greed by pretending to care for the poor when in fact he didn't really care for them. He's found to be a thief and a liar. We see clearly that Judas, Judas worshipped his self and his needs above worshipping Jesus and other people. He neither really worshipped Jesus nor cared for the poor. Jesus, Judas did not want to humble himself before God, before Jesus in worship. Judas held tightly to his pride as the one who would provide for himself to the point of willing to lie and steal and betray in order to provide for himself. Jesus knew Judas's heart. God, Jesus, after all, was omniscient. He knew all. And yet, Jesus' heart... I mean, he could have cast out Judas any time, but he wanted to call Judas back. Just as Jesus longed for Israel and particularly the Jewish leadership to come back to God, to see that he indeed was the Messiah that was sent to save the world from sin. Jesus hoped for Judas to return to him as well. It's easy when we read this account to dismiss Judas as just the traitor the villain in the story. But Judas's place in this biblical story is really meant for us. It's meant to challenge us in the way we put ourselves and our needs above our worship of Jesus. It's meant to challenge the way in which we are committed to provide for ourselves and the lengths to which we will go to provide for ourselves. It's meant to challenge the way we might betray Jesus in our acts. And in this Lent season, we need to remember that. We need to remember the ways in which we are reflected in Judas's acts in case we casually walk to the cross with Jesus. We say we follow and worship Jesus just like Judas did, but we must allow God to transform us deeply, to transform our most deeply held commitments and beliefs. We know it. We see it around us. Our country and our culture is going through a sea change right now. But we must allow God to challenge our deepest held commitments and beliefs, whether liberal or conservative or libertarian, whatever they may be, and to be willing to allow God to make us more like him to sanctify us, to sanctify our beliefs, our thoughts, our motivations, our actions. And as we talked about last week, God is making his appeal through us. We are the ambassadors of his reconciling work in this world. We are his righteousness in this world. We can know the gospel and still bring great shame to the gospel. And therefore, we can't just double down on our political beliefs. We first must double down on being made holy through Jesus. What are our deepest held commitments that we hold on to so tightly that we're not even willing to hold it up to the light of God's truth to say, God, maybe I got this wrong. Will you shape this and transform this by the power of your word, by the power of Jesus himself? Will we humbly hear the word of God and worship God as Mary did? Or will we hold on to providing for ourselves as Judas did?
Jesus defends Mary. Verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. Jesus here points to his death and the primacy of worship of Jesus. Jesus points to his death and the primacy of worshiping him. He's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to his death. He's pointing to his upcoming resurrection. He's pointing to his ascension into heaven. You will not always have me. He brings us back to the gospel. He brings us back to himself. The one who will set us free from the sins of this world. Some people have used this verse to justify not caring for the poor, which is terrible shame because that's really not what's intended to mean. The assumption and direct teaching of Jesus and Jewish practice of the time was to care for the poor. Jesus' point is not, you don't need to care for the poor. Just build really big churches and worship me. That's not the application for this, from this verse. But Jesus is directly rebuking Judas's sinful motivations, but also correcting those who do not put worship of God first. He is putting this primacy of worship of Him. Even our care for the poor, however good it is, can be done separate from God. And God says, care for the poor out of worship to me. All of life must be worship to God. If we only have a productive view of worship, I mean of life, then we may spend the majority of our efforts just making things better in this world, which will be good in and of itself, and yet we might do so in neglect of our worship to God, neglect of our relationship with God. Jesus is saying, make worship of God the priority and everything else will fall into place. Even our care for the poor can be done in a self-reliant, self-dependent, self-sufficient, prideful kind of way. We have to put worship of God first in order to fight against that constant temptation to do things in our own power. Just like how Judas's apparent care for the poor was a cover for his lack of worship, Jesus sought, uh, Judas sought really only to see what he could get out of this, of following Jesus. Mary, on the, on the other hand, received the gospel and sought to offer a whole life worship to Jesus. Jesus calls us today, just the same, to put the worship of God first. And when I say worship, I don't mean coming to church on Sunday to attend a worship service. I mean a heart posture of worship through all of our life and everything that we do. Jesus, again, is calling us to lay down our pride and our self-sufficiency and to humble ourselves before the Almighty Creator, Redeemer, and Savior. There's always a temptation for us to just go through the motions of religious practice and forgetting the heart of what worship is meant to be, to humble ourselves before God and asking Him to transform all of our life. To relinquish control to God is to humble ourselves in self-forgetful worship like Mary did. As I looked at this passage, 
Sadly, I think we are too often like Judas and less like Mary. Not in the sense that we betray Jesus the way that Judas did exactly, but we are always tempted to our self-reliance, to our pride, rather than a self-forgetful, humbling worship of God. The Gospel reminds us that through our worship of God, we draw close to Him. And though our worship may always fall short of the worth that God is due, we know that Christ died on the cross for our shortcomings. That Christ died on the cross for the ways in which we did not worship Him, we did not put Him first. But not only that, that Christ covers over us with His goodness, with His righteousness. That Jesus is actually our lead worshiper. That whenever we go before God, that His blood covers us, His blood covers us, and also His goodness covers us. And that means that God sees our worship as perfect because it's led and covered by Jesus Christ our Lord. That through faith in Christ, we offer up to God a worship that God is due, that we bring and magnify His name through the praise we give in the name of Jesus. We find that this story ends in this way. Again, a note of death. Verses 9 through 11, which was not read earlier, but we find here that many find life in Jesus despite threats of death. This theme, again, of death carries throughout this account. And it ends with, again, many finding life in Christ, but the Pharisees feeling ever more threatened by Jesus and his message. And it says that many were coming to faith, and so the Pharisees decided that not only does Jesus need to die, but Lazarus needs to die as well. Because Lazarus' testimony of being brought back to life through Jesus' power is just too powerful. But yet we find that the Pharisees are in a bind. This power they thought they had to manipulate and manage and even take life from others has no power over Jesus. Because he is the one who has power over death. So they can threaten to take Jesus' life. They can threaten to take Lazarus' life. But Jesus has already showed that he brought Lazarus back from the dead. So if they would take Lazarus' life, then Jesus could just bring him back to life again. Death has no power over Jesus. Death has no power over us who have put our faith in Jesus. And that is why we humble ourselves in self-forgetful, extravagant worship of God. Because He is the one who has defeated the power of sin and death and has given us hope for life, not only in this world, but in the life to come. I want to end with the kids again. So kids, come up and join me. And trust me, you'll like it. Church's candy bag. And this is a bag full of candy that is meant for 
You can't have one. I'm just showing you. This is a bag of candy for the church to be shared amongst the whole church. See? Okay? Now imagine you're in charge of this bag, right? And you have to take care of it. But it also means that you're often alone with this bag somewhere where no one can see. And so because you have so many candy with you and you figure there's like 500 candy in here, I'll just take one when no one's looking, right? No one will know. So you start taking a candy every now and then. No one's going to know, right? So you take a candy here and a candy there. And you figure, no biggie. What's five less candy in a bag of 500? <laughs> but then you can't stop yourself. <laughs> and you're with a bag of candy a lot. So you keep taking more and more and more. It's easy to do that, right? Do you think you would be able to not take any candy from this bag if you were in charge of it? Yes. Yes? Oh, great confidence. Okay. In the story today, I don't know how much you were paying attention, but Judas, who's one of Jesus' closest followers, he was in charge of, not the candy bag, the money bag, and he took from it. And he took from it because he didn't trust Jesus to provide. And so he felt like he had to take it into his own hands, provide for himself. Now, there was another person in the story. So I want you to imagine this. Imagine, this is not the church's candy bag. This is your candy bag that you had been saving all year long. You had collected all the candy that you had found, all of your Halloween candy, and you were saving it for a special day. I don't know. But then, you know what happens? Jesus comes into your house. And you just filled with so much love and thanks for Jesus, for his love for you, for what he's done for you, that you're like, I want to give Jesus a big gift. What can I give him? And you start going through your, your stuffed animals and your toys, and you're like, ah, none of this is any good. And you remember the bag of candy you have been saving for a whole year. And you think, I'm going to give that to Jesus. And so you take it your bag of candy that you've been saving all year. I'm about to do something, and I'm going to say, don't touch. Don't touch, okay? You've been saving this bag all year. Jesus is right there. You're like, I'm going to give my bag of candy to Jesus. So you come out from your closet, and you go, Jesus! It's all yours. No, don't touch. This is for Jesus. It's not for you. Imagine that. Imagine you took the bag of candy that you had collected all year and you gave it all to Jesus just because you loved him so much. This is what Mary did in our story today. She knows how much she loves her candy. Okay, you need a self-control. This is my fear. Jesus has candy. It's not your candy. Let me just finish, and then you guys can take some, okay? Finish. Let me finish her. Let me finish. Okay, look at me, not the candy. <laughs> this is how much 
this is how much Mary loved Jesus, that she was willing to give what was most precious to her and just to give it to Jesus in worship of him. This Lent and Easter season, I want you to think about what incredible gift of love you can give to Jesus.